And it can be stated like this. How can God convince people who are afraid of his world that they don't need to be afraid of him? How can God convince people who are afraid of his world and each other and lions, probably tigers, all that stuff. How can he convince people who are afraid of this world that they don't need to be afraid of him? How can he repair what fear has broken in us in a way that doesn't just drive us further away? I want you to think back to your own childhood for just a moment. That's a various distance in the past for all of you, but you know, I'll give those of you who have a further way to go an extra second here to catch up. Right, the question is, did you ever skin your elbow or your knee when you were a child? I tried to think of what is a universal childhood injury, and this is what I came up with. We've all skinned our elbow or our knee, right? Do you remember how it felt to do that? It's probably been a long time since you skinned your elbow or your knee. Some of you a very long time since you skinned your elbow or your knee. Now, after you did this, did a doctor or a school nurse or a parent or a sibling ever try to help you with that injury? Do you remember you did it? Do you remember them coming to help you? And if they did, I want you to remember them like kneeling down and looking at for where you're hurt, right? If you hurt yourself, you're crying on the sidewalk or whatever, they're like bending down and trying to like see what's wrong. And now as you are in this memory again, I want to ask you, where are your hands? Where are your hands? Where are they? Covering up the they're, they're around the wound, aren't they? You're covering the very thing that people want to see. The adults is there saying, let me see, let me see. And even though you know you need them, that's why you cried, right? You wouldn't have cried if you didn't know you needed them. You still don't want to unfold your fingers from around that wound. Because past experience, right? Doing that. Uncovering the wound means a scratchy paper towel. It means peroxide or something worse, depending on your age, again, right? It means ointment. And the reality of this experience is that you're not going to feel safe again until you get a band-aid on this thing, right? Until it's covered up. My point with this illustration is that nothing, the trouble is that nothing gets fixed until you stop hiding it, right? Until you stop hiding yourself. But the reality is that's not easy to do. Because when you're in this position, what happens is all these fears and these blames that are like deep in you start to come out. And so the adult, the person who can help is saying like, show me, show me, show me. And you're saying things like, where were you? You're going to make it worse. Don't touch me. Which is the most frustrating if you're on the other side of the story, right? It's like, but you are, like you called me. Now, in the Bible's version of this story, God has tried a lot of things to solve this problem with people, right? He's tried showing people special attention, right? Giving, pouring his focused attention out on them to try and get them to trust him. He's, he's tried other things. He's tried delivering them from physical bondage, like the Israelites once, once experienced in Egypt, so that they might trust him with their spiritual problems. He's tried other things. He's tried giving them laws and commandments so that they can have a clearer sense of what's really at stake. And I think this is like a parent trying to like rationally explain to their hurt and crying child what needs to be done and why it's important. Like the law is like the parent saying, 
it is going to get infected if you keep touching it, right? God's done other things. He's tried like walking away and just like letting them sort it out for themselves for a while to see if that gets us anywhere. But in all the things God has tried, there is always a distance between Him and the people that He loves. And what's notable is just like you with your fingers clenched, clenched around your knee, the people are the ones who are fighting hardest to maintain that distance. And even when things are going well in the Bible, it, it, it get conversations that feel like this whole stretches of Israel's history where it's as if the Israelites are saying, like, thank you so much for the rule book of God. We will take it from here. All right, we will obey and respect you and we will work hard to keep you happy, which we're assuming is what you want. You just keep food in our bellies and a roof over our head and our enemies on the other side of the gate, and that's we're going to be good. But I think if we look at the Bible from God's perspective, the core of what we discover is that honor has never been what God has been after. Intimacy is what God has been after all this time. A love that heals and a love that keeps safe. And I think this brings us, we look at the story in this way, it brings us finally to the greatest of God's plans in the Bible to resolve his problem. That is, to ultimately draw nearer to us as one of us. To draw near as one. Even to skin his own knee. To live out intimacy with his creation in an unmissably personal way, which is to say, as a person. And the first 13 chapters of John's Gospel tell that story by revealing God in the person of Jesus living and eating and laughing and traveling with his friends. And like notice the thing he does when he travels with his friends. He heals others, perhaps so that those who are closest to him might trust him with their own wounds. Look at what I can do if you would trust me. He feeds others so his friends might believe that they too will be sustained and can be fed. And as we saw last week, he serves his friends in the lowliest of ways, right, by washing their feet just so that his friends can finally believe that more than the kind of honor that they've been raised to think God is looking for, the kind of honor that keeps God at arm's length from us, what God wants is just simply to allow, for them to allow him to love them. That is what God wants from them. But for all the effectiveness of God's plan to solve God's problem up to this point, which we talked about last week. This is working, right? He succeeds in washing the feet of these 12 guys and earning at least 11 of their, 11 of them earning their trust. But even with all the success of the plan up to this point, there is one major issue that remains, and I wonder if you don't sense it around the corner. There's something like this. It is all fine and good for Jesus who have once upon a time earned the trust of his closest friends. But Kenny, I am not one of his closest friends. If the God of the universe had like bothered to befriend me, right, if Jesus had moved to Annapolis and made me his buddy, then of course I would trust him. I would believe in him. Surely, if God did that, I would unclench my fingers from around my knees. So the question becomes, how can the intimacy of the living Jesus with his friends become intimacy to you, to me, to us? 
and we don't know him in that way. It's been a long preamble, one of my longest preambles in the sermon. But here's the thing, in that last meal with his friends, this, I think, is the dance that we see behind Jesus' words. Jesus is talking to them, he keeps saying, what I'm doing for you, the 12 of you, is personal to you, but also I am here to make a promise to others who are not you. What I am doing to serve others will, for a brief while, my friends, not make sense to you. But I will help you to understand what has happened in time. So please continue to trust me. In a nutshell, Jesus spends three chapters of the, of, of the Gospel of John saying exactly that to his followers. Please just keep trusting me. It's going to seem weird. Just trust me. Nine times between chapter 14 and chapter 18, Jesus tells his friends not to worry and not to be afraid. Nine times. And he does this because he knows that he is going to die. And what he is begging the disciples to do when they see this God who has become Jesus personal to them, intimate to them, when they see this God die, he is begging the disciples to not give up on who they have discovered him to be. That his whole mission has been to bring God near. And that in his death, that mission isn't going to fail, it's going to expand. So in chapter 14, a conversation with Philip reminds everybody of this goal. We read, Philip said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So there's already this tension about intimacy at the beginning of this dinner. But what we learn here is that Jesus isn't a substitute for intimacy with God. Jesus is a path to intimacy with God. If you have seen him, then he, if he is personally connected with you, then the miracle is already done. You don't need to ask him to show you the Father because now you know the Father. Like we said, what about us, the people who don't know him as personally? What access do we have? The power of the Jesus miracle, right, is his physicality. His words are like heard by human ears and his body is like touched by human hands. And you and I, 2,000 years later, we just simply don't have that same great access. That's just true. So the question is, what is God going to do? And it takes a while in these chapters, which as a whole are referred to as the Last Supper Discourse. It takes a while in these chapters for this plan to unfurl itself. And the first sign of what's coming is later in that conversation with Philip we just introduced where this happens. Jesus is speaking and he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. But this is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus is, or in this discourse, that Jesus has spoken about the Advocate, who is also sometimes referred to as the Holy Spirit. And it is tempting for us to kind of get in the weeds when we think about the Holy Spirit from our perspective. 
We can get tied up in knots. If you've been around churches for any significant part of your life, you've listened to sermons or heard pastors or read workbooks that like, get tied up in big knots about what the Holy Spirit is and how this works and like what the Trinity is and how this works or what the oneness of God really means. But since today isn't about our perspective, right, which can be easily confused, but about God's perspective, what we're going to do is we're just going to stick to what Jesus says with as much plainness as possible here. And what Jesus says is that the advocate is an emissary, right, sent by God to abide within those who trust Jesus. That's, that's what he says. Furthermore, this advocate is a spirit of truth, which means then that the advocate has the same goal as God has and the same goal as Jesus has, which is that we fearful people would discover and trust God's healing love for us. That's the goal. That we would trust God's healing love for us. Now, in the John story, you might really be great late here with the disciples because the disciples do not pick up on what Jesus is saying and have no idea what he is talking about. Instead, they perseverate on the thing that is behind what he said that's more immediately important to them. And what's important then is that they have touched God in the person of Jesus. They have built vibrant, living relationships with God through his son, Jesus. And then, underneath all this stuff about the advocate, what Jesus is telling them is like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. And that's all they hear. And so, their worry about Jesus leaving, the intimate, personal, relatable God disappearing, takes up almost all of chapter 15 and then actually <coughs> some of the chapters around that, just the disciples being worried. And then in chapter 16, what happens is Jesus tries again to connect what is about to happen with his death to this bigger plan. And he says this, he says to his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, an hour is coming when those who kill you will think that by doing so, they are offering worship to God. And they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. He's saying hardships are coming to you, disciples, and they will come from leaders in your religion. But the reason is because those leaders are still trying to keep God at arm's length by trusting their understanding of the rule book over and above their understanding of Christ. So they think that it is a bad or at least a dangerous thing for God to be too close to us. God is dangerous. And they're still afraid of him and afraid of his nearness. And then Jesus goes on to say, But I have said these things to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I am going to the Father and you will see me no longer. About judgment because it is the ruler of this world who has been condemned. 
At the beginning here, Jesus says that he didn't tell his friends that danger was still in front of them because he was there with them, which is only marginally comforting or reassuring in any way. But I would contend that what's happening here is that Jesus is again reminding them that intimacy, that relationship with God is the place that safety and comfort actually can be found. It was only like in the absence of that relationship, of that intimacy, that like danger needs to be clarified. And so also here that the bridge that needs to be crossed, right, from the touchable intimacy that these 12 people have in this person, Jesus, to the abiding intimacy that can all people can have access to through this advocate, this Holy Spirit. For that, for that to happen, it's going to require this handoff that is going to feel to these 12 men like a loss instead of a gain. And this ends up being like the heartbreaking center of this whole section of the gospel, the Last Supper discourse, which is that victory to these men is going to seem very much like defeat, and that deeper healing is going to require some initial vulnerability, which is all really a way of saying, right, that the hands have to come off the wound for anything to be repaired. So it's all still very mysterious and unclear. If you're feeling confused, it's okay. We're going to keep going. I think it will start to make more sense. What happens next is that Jesus goes on to say, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own, but will speak whatever He hears. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, he said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, I think we're starting to get somewhere. There's so much beauty in what Jesus says here. More so than perhaps any other passage in John's Gospel, I think this is a moment where Jesus is like breaking that fourth wall, if you remember theater class from high school. Right? Fourth wall, it's like when we talk directly to the audience. Some of you are looking like, I'm so dumb, because that's so obvious to you. But I saw look, confused looks from non-theater kids. There's a thing we know about theater kids is that they do not understand non-theater kids. Right? Anyways, Jesus is talking, he's breaking the fourth wall, he's talking to the people reading this, hearing this beyond just these 12 men. He's talking to his friends and he's talking to us. And what does he say? Well, first, he says that there is more to discover about God. That he has many things still to share. Like he hasn't downloaded all of the God info. He's only told them parts. Second, he says that the advocate, the spirit, is going to keep talking. You're not done hearing from God. And the Spirit's going to continue guiding those who love Jesus into deeper and deeper truth, more and more understanding of the Father. And then third, he says this really quite lovely and reassuring thing, which he says that anything you hear from the Spirit is still me talking. It's still Jesus talking. That what the Spirit's going to do is he's going to take what is mine and declare it to you. And then lastly, Jesus is saying that all of this is God. In the same way that Jesus is God the Father drawing near to these 12 people, becoming tangible to these 12 people, the Holy Spirit is Jesus coming even closer to us than a touchable person and abiding within us, within each of us, through all time, everywhere, every person. 
an internal abiding of God in, in the person's being. Which is to say that this advocate, this Holy Spirit, is the intimacy plan fully completed. It's the solution to God's problem, fully incarnated, fully realized. The people who fear Him, right? The people who keep Him at, heart, at arm's length, who push Him away, clutch their fingers around the wound, have been loved so dearly, pursued so faithfully that the help they need has first become physical to them so they might learn to, to trust it and see it. And then soon Jesus is saying it will become spiritual so that it might extend that nearness that you know as a person who's talked to and touched Jesus, might extend that nearness to everyone, everywhere, all at once. Because it dwells inside. Now, like I said before, we get into this the Holy Spirit talk. And we get into the weeds, we get lost when we talk about this in church. And often when we try to cover this belief in church, it becomes terribly abstract and it becomes super alien, right? We're like, oh, all right, I'm like Jesus, historical person that I like lived a good life that I can know about. Yes, fully on board. That guy died and came back from the dead. Probably. I'm like still on board. But like the the ineffable, mysterious spirit of God himself lives inside every single person who professes faith in Jesus Christ is where we get lost. Like, what in the world does that mean? It's hard to understand. And then tragically and ironically, because it's hard to understand, it ends up leading in the exact opposite direction from where we've been invited through that spirit to go. Because the thing is, right, the Holy Spirit isn't the least clear way of knowing God. It's not the most confusing way of knowing God. It's supposed to be the most clear and least confusing way of knowing God. The most intimate way of knowing God. More so than if you could see and touch Jesus like sitting over there in the corner of this room. This is supposed to be the intimacy plan completed. A next step. A closer dwelling of God to you than even a human sitting around. And, and we get lost. But think about what the Holy Spirit is promising us, right? Like, to be able to speak anytime, anywhere, and even without words to your Creator. The Bible says that the Spirit of God hears like the longings of our heart and communicates them directly to the Father. To be able to trust that the God of the universe hears your heart even when you can't put it into words is a and then conversely, to be able to hear God, not just with our faulty and inconsistent ears or even with the, the beauty that is Scripture, but to hear God like in your actual heart, to have God closer to us than any other person or voice or law, to have Him dwell in you and be able to convict you and speak to you in your heart is a miracle. To have the experience of the love of God, right, available to us, not just on, like, the nation-sized level of, like, God's blessing in Israel, or even, like, the human-sized level of, like, the 12 people who were closest friends with Jesus, but through direct feelings, like, right into your soul, to have the access to feeling God's love that close is the most profound miracle the world has ever seen. It's incomprehensible that we have access to that. It is no slight to Jesus or to God to discover that the intimacy of the Holy Spirit is the final answer to what we've been searching for. To ever feel like the Holy Spirit is not enough because our preference would be to like see and touch 
Jesus is exactly the same kind of mistake that the religious leaders of Jesus' day made when they decided that he wasn't enough because they preferred the God that they only knew through priests and sacrifices and rituals. It is a rejection of intimacy based on fear. Which gives us the last point, right? Why do we miss this? We miss it because we forget that the goal all along has been that intimacy. I've been repeating that word all morning. But what does it mean, intimacy? What do you think it means? What does it mean to you? Is there a relationship in your life presently where you experience intimacy? It is sometimes said that love is the most widely and easily experienced of human emotions. That love can be stirred up by a look or a smile or a word or a memory. That it can swell in your heart right with the sunshine on just a pretty day. And maybe you felt it looking at snow the other day. It can make you smile when you see an act of kindness or reach down to pet a friendly dog if you're a dog person, whatever animal makes you happy, you know? It's easy to love. It's easy to feel love. But the thing is that love is not intimacy. Intimacy happens when those feelings that love stirs up in you, that rise up in you, are safely and completely poured out somewhere. Intimacy is when you are able to tell a friend, right, frankly and without an ironic tone, that I love you. That the feeling can pour out in those words without embarrassment. Intimacy is when you discover or rediscover that your partner will accept your weaknesses as much as your strengths. Intimacy requires an emotional nakedness, right, that can be terrifying. Which is a reminder to us, right, that the enemy of intimacy is always, always fear. Fear leads to insecurity. Fear leads to secrecy. Fear leads us to withdrawal. And in that way, right, this is the whole story of the world. Withdrawing. So my closing point is this. If God is really there, and if God really is love, isn't the only place he could have ever been heading intimacy? Isn't intimacy like over judgment, over reverence, over obedience? Isn't intimacy what he would most want with us? And when our fear drives us away, what could possibly be more important to him? What could possibly be more important to God than trying to draw close to us again? than repairing whatever those things are that create those barriers. When we're tempted to hide our own nakedness, what could ever be a more serious problem for God to solve than figuring out how to make us safe and to wrap his arms around us again? I would contend that as we read the rest of the Gospel of John in the coming weeks, that Jesus lives a life that we can trust, we like and admire him, so that God's spirit can be something we accept. This, I think, is the core of John's whole gospel, that the intimacy plan of God is to do everything to ease our fears, to reassure us with his presence, to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is God and that he is good, all so that we might unclench our fingers from around our wounds and allow him to heal, to allow him to love us. To allow him to fully reassure us with his intimate presence, not just in the person of Jesus, but in our very hearts. Because if we do that, 
then I think we can finally understand what we were actually created to be, which is not perfect anything in the world, but we were created to be or simply as children. So the question is, can we learn to believe that, to accept it? That every good thing, every character trait we wish for, every act of generosity we admire, every honest confession we hold back could flow freely from the discovery that Jesus leads us to the Father and that the Father offers us the Spirit and this is love and this is intimacy. I'll pray for us in the Lord's community.